This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. That is true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres can learn more about Author Magazine at authormagazine.org, and we're funded by the good people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. To learn more about the PNWA and their sort of, kind of, upcoming conference this September, yes, go to pnwa.org. That's right. Uh, so, you know, I get to meet so many great writers, and there's so many wonderful writers out there who are very popular and have been around a while, and I have just never heard of them, and I don't meet them until I do this, do these one of these episodes with them, and this is such an occasion. I interviewed Stephen P. Kiernan for the first time. God, what a great conversation we had, and, you know, I just had never heard of him, his, for whatever reason. Not like he wasn't doing all right. In fact, he's uh, got seven books and decades in newspapers, Stephen has had nearly 5 million words in print. He's a graduate of Middlebury College, the John Hopkins Writing Seminars, and the Iowa Writers Workshop. And his work has won dozens of awards, has been translated into many languages, and has been optioned for TV and film production. That's right. So we got to talk about all kinds of cool stuff. He tells a great story about inspiration and kind of where it comes from. And, well... You know, he's just one of my people. So I'm so glad I got him on the show. So glad I got to meet him. And I am so glad I get to share our conversation with you now. Enjoy. Hey, okay. We got Stephen Kiernan, Stephen P. Kiernan on the show. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I just want you to know that I'm not putting the initial P in there because I want to be a pain in the ass. It's because some guy named Stephen Kiernan has got the domain name and all that stuff. No. And yeah, and he won't give it up. So I'm, I'm a middle initial kind of guy now. Well, you know Andre Debuse? You yes. might He's in your neck of the woods up down there. Roughly, yeah. Yeah, he's he doesn't, he doesn't like the fact that he has to be a third, but he's got a famous... His father was yeah. well known enough that he had to so, yeah, do no, it. You no, got to no, do no, it, brother. So. You got to you got to distinguish yourself. You got to be me. You do. You do. Well, okay. Speaking of got to be you. So this is book number seven, novel number five, right? Am I counting correctly? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you are. You have evolved into a theme ish around your fiction writing. I don't know if it was intentional. That involves war ish some iraqs the atomic bomb world war ii you're sort of it's, it's hovering around the issue of war has that has arisen is something that you're interested in was that accidental as most creativity is or is this something you sort of said oh yeah i, I gotta come back to that you know sometimes like if you put out your glove and the ball winds up in it and you go yeah. oh, look at that yeah and you do that a couple times then you start putting your glove out there yeah <laughs> um, so so you know the answer is um you know, my first, uh, you know, a couple nonfiction books. And then my first novel was contemporary, you know, here and now. And then um, it had a little bit of history in it. And I found that that was kind of fun. And ah. uh, the next book I had, um, uh, there was a piece of it, about a third of it, that involved someone from the Pacific Theater of World War II, a Japanese uh, pilot. Um, you're in Seattle. I don't know if you know about this, but, you know, the West Coast of the United States was bombed 
by a Japanese pilot, and yeah. he came. Oh no! I out. actually so I I was thinking of I was thinking of Pearl Harbor, but which I thought you were making a joke. But no, the actual someone actually bombed the, the West Coast. I didn't know that. He did. Uh, he bombed. I think it was uh, the southern part of Washington State, and then oh, um, and then Brookings, Oregon. He was dropping fire bombs and wanted to set the woods of the Northwest on fire. They didn't know those woods were a little soggy. Um, <laughs> he came back. He came back like 30 years after the war to apologize for dropping the bombs. Wow. And in the town of Brookings, Oregon, he gave them a samurai sword that had been in his family for 19 generations as a gesture of peace. It's wow. still there in the public library in Brookings. True story. That's and cool. so I, I wrote a novel about a guy who came back from his third deployment in Iraq with a lot of PTSD. And the question was, how does a warrior become a man of peace? And this guy's story from World War II sort of influenced. So I stumbled into that. That was putting the glove out and a ball turned out yeah, to be in it. Yeah. And um, and then I wrote um, The Baker's Secret. That is D-Day from the French point of view. And so now I'm like, okay. And I thought, well, all right. And that one I wanted to write, again, not really thinking I'm a war writer. There's there's not there's not like generals and captains and right. artillery. It's not that sort of thing. It's ordinary folks. And then I thought, well, you know, I've written a Pacific theater book and I've written a uh, European theater book. I want to write a home front book. So I wrote Universe of Two, which is about, you know, this smart young mathematician who gets drafted into what he doesn't really understand right. what it's about for a while. And it turns out he's building the detonator for the atomic bomb. Yeah. And and he and a lot of the scientists have a lot of ethical misgivings about what they're doing. Um, and we can see how strong those misgivings turned out to be. I mean, yeah. here we are, right? <laughs> yep. Um, so so I had that. And then I thought, okay, well, I've done those three. Um, uh, and, and now I want to do a post-war novel. Yeah. So that's kind of what the glass chateau is oh, about. That's, all right. So you were so it was a little mixture. You but you know, I think that's pretty good. You kind of recognize something. So I, I think humanities, the way we get we pursue things is so beautiful in its in, the, the improvisational nature of it, the inevitable, meaning you didn't really know, but then you recognize something that caught your interest and you say, Well, let's see. You don't know until you see it, and then you know, and then you pursue it. But it all starts with, the, like you said, the glove out. There is always the accidental, but then you, then your sort of deliberate mind can take over and work with that. You know. Yeah, I think that that's true, and um, I would even say that that's how I write a novel. You know, yeah. that I have this yeah. idea of it, and because I worked in newspapers for a lot of years, I write really fast, and I just like whatever comes, I take it all in, and right. whatever the story is, and I get to the end, and then I say, okay. Now, what story am I actually writing here? What is the actual story here? And I go back to the beginning. And that the most fun part of the whole process, artistically, is that first rewrite. Because oh now I know God. this is what this character is like. And his name is Bill. And right. he wears glasses. And, right. Right, and I begin to understand what he's like. And, yep. you know, and and uh, then the whole thing kind of... and. The other thing I'll say that's kind of fun about that, not to get all woo-woo on it, but hey, you know, when I'm hey, writing- you cannot be too woo-woo on this show. It's impossible. Right. Go ahead. Okay. I assure, anybody who knows me, no, it's not possible to be too woo-woo. Go all for right, it. I'm going full woo on you, though, okay. right? <laughs> the whole time that I'm writing, in addition to imagination, it's also concentration. Like, here's the, here's what they're wearing. Here's what kind of place they're in. Right. Here's how they speak. Here's their motives and their desires. Here's what the weather's like. Like, you're trying to keep track of all that stuff. Yep. Conscious mind working very, very hard. Yeah. And what I learned, it took me a couple novels to learn this, is that whole time, the subconscious mind is working every bit as hard. Yeah. And in fact, 
it's a little bit smarter. Oh. It's a little bit more imaginative and inventive. And so I wrote the, um, the Curiosity, for example, I thought was going to be a really political book about a lot of weird, questionable ethics stuff that's being done with cells and with, you know, designer genes and, you know, all of that stuff and gene splicing and, um, and it was going to be a really political, almost polemic book. And I got to the end, it's like, Nope, it's a love story. Nothing I can do. The love story is way more interesting. And it just took out uh, like almost all the politics. And that meant like a whole, uh, there was a character, a major character I just yeah. took out, shortened the book. So um, the same as planning like a career of books. I, I don't, I didn't sit back and go, I believe I will write a book about each theater of right, the war. Right. And then, no, no, no. It was much more like, I am fascinated with how ordinary folk deal with events and powers so much greater than them. And what I believe about human nature and what emerges under those yeah. circumstances. And that's really what I was exploring. So like the atomic bomb book is really about one 19 year old's conscience. Right. Really. Right. You know, and um, so, and you know, the glass chateau, this new book, you know um, it starts a month after the war is over. It's really about one guy and he's got to recover from the death of his family and the grief of that. And he's got to recover from being an assassin yeah. For the resistance and the yeah. people that he murdered and yeah. and that he feels guilt about yeah. and and it's his recovery story and um often these characters are way way more noble than i would be you know hey you don't know else, you don't know you don't know how noble yeah, you might be you don't know until you're there sometimes you know <laughs> you don't know i think i'd be one of those guys where the, the occupying army would be like somebody shut him up <laughs> oh, well it could you be know? you don't know yeah. You know, I, I think it's a lovely thing. And it's so cool that in your, so the, the, the curiosity is your first novel. That was the first novel after writing your, your non yes. that's the first work of fiction. Yes. You discovered really the secret, Stephen, which is, um, you don't know. You don't know. You don't really know. And, and you, and you discovered it accidentally and you honored it because it's so important as an artist to acknowledge you don't really know, but something else does. And your job is to find out and discover and follow it. And that you learned that in your first novel, hats off to you because for a lot of sometimes for beginning is you weren't a beginning writer but you were a beginning novelist you hadn't that was a newer pursuit there is a sense of like hey who's in charge here buddy you know daddy's in charge and you're really you're really not <laughs> not at all i mean no you know was eel doctor says that i think it's eel doctor he says yeah. that uh, right writing a novel is like driving a pencil yeah. to philadelphia yeah. at night right you can only see as far as your headlights yeah and the major turns it's definitely true um and even oh can i tell a story sure <laughs> hey, okay. man. Yeah. okay so this is sort of how i think in story okay so um i got a a, a residency fellowship to an artist colony in france and i wanted oh. to go over to see yeah really cool right yeah. that's like not my daily life at all <laughs> in my basement in right. my house in vermont okay right. <laughs> um so so I'm sorry to go over there because I want to see the windows of, stain, of of the stained glass windows of Marc Chagall are an important part of the glass chateau. Yeah. And um, and so um, I've studied on these things. I've got the best, uh, you know, book of photographs, but it's like this big when, you know, the windows are 25 feet or 22 feet by six. Plus, you're not experiencing this. You cannot replicate the light through a stained glass exactly, window. Exactly. It's impossible. Right. It's impossible. That's right. That's right. And so so um, so I'm headed over there. Very excited about it. And Tavia Kolchak, who is a marketing director, I think she has a bigger title than that, but she's a marketing person at HarperCollins and she's my friend. 
And she says, when you go over there, take a lot of pictures and post them on social media. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. That's too show offy. And she said, yeah. no, people think writers have interesting lives, even though most of it's just sitting at a keyboard. You should take pictures. People will like it. So the first day I get there, I'm taking pictures of, you know, of Paris as I'm getting on the train to get out to Reims, the city that has these windows and this cathedral, the outside of the cathedral. When I get there, it's closed, but I get pictures and I'm posting them. And she was right. Like hundreds of people are liking these posts. Oh, nice. And I'm one guy, one guy says, hey, it must be nice. Everyone else like is, yeah, there's the human nature. Right. But um, but most people were incredibly nice about it. And um and there was a mistake in the hotel arrangements so that I was kind of on the outskirts of town. There wasn't Uber or taxi service there. It was about a 40 minute walk to the cathedral and kind of the middle of town. Like it was, it was an inconvenience. Right. So um, I'm taking lots of pictures. I'm posting them. And I've sort of seen what I need to see. The cathedral was, they started building it in the year 818. Right. It's like gigantic old cathedral. Took five Americans, we can't even, it's, we don't, it means. We have no idea. No idea. I know. You know and the windows there, you know, were all destroyed during the war and be, they've been rebuilt since then. It's this amazing place. And some of the statues that have the faces blown off, they've left them that way as kind wow. of okay. members. Like it's, it's very powerful, right? And I've been posting all these pictures and people have been great. So um, so the last night it's raining. It's like, it's actually the afternoon, mid afternoon I'm, and I'm writing and I come to a scene, it's pouring rain and I come to a scene where- um, Are you writing this book? You're writing this book? This I'm book. writing this book, first okay. draft. Okay. okay, first draft. So I'm really writing. I'm just following my headlights, and I get to the scene where, um, where two guys are probably going to have a fight, and one of them thinks that he's like really strong and he's very passionate, he's very determined, and the other guy who's kind of, you know, not emaciated, but he's not, he's still like recovering from starving during the war right. and stuff, but he happens to be a trained assassin. So he's already figured out like three different ways he can kill that other guy really fast. But it means he'll be revealed as an assassin to everyone, which he doesn't want. And he also doesn't want to kill any more people. And so he's really in this dilemma. And meanwhile, the other guy's like, you know, I'm ready to punch, you know, and um, and and the scene is out of control. And so I do. I think what now every self-respecting novelist does in a moment like that, I close the file and check my email. <laughs> and, and, and I have an email from Tavia and the email says, I'm loving these photos. These are so great. I hope you're also shooting lots of video. And I go video. <laughs> and, and I can hear the rain just like against my window, you know? So it's my last day there, you know, and when you're in a foreign country and you're in a place and you're leaving the next day, you may never be back in your life. Yeah, Probably yeah. you won't be, right? Yep. For me anyway, I'm not going to be back in that city again. And so, so okay, what the hell? So I close the computer and I go walking across the town and it's 40 minutes of walking in the rain. And I'm kind of grumbling and like, I hope this is worth it. And, you know, I have all this attitude about it. And I get to the cathedral and they do, it was in late October and they do daylight savings earlier in France, which I hadn't known. So it's virtually dark. There's not going to be any light coming through these windows. Right. I get to the cathedral and they have outside lights shining on it, which I think stops at like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So it's just like that. So maybe there'll be some light. I don't know. And I go inside the place. The doors are 20 feet tall and, you know, thick wooden things. And, and I go inside and instantly I know, even just in the foyer, the atmosphere is different from when I was there before. And I stick my head around with the door into the main church and, um, 
there, instead of the, the big lights overhead and light coming into the windows, there are a couple of low kind of sconces on the posts and there are about 3,000 candles. And at the front of this church, turns out, you know, there are a bunch of, I knew this, I didn't know this about this place, but there are a bunch of cities in Europe that have these fantastic children's choirs. Mm. Like the the Vienna Boys Choir, right, like right, the, sure. Yeah. This this cathedral is one of those places, oh. and there are 80, 70, 60, a ton of kids at the front, and they're singing. Right, you already get. It. I'm like I'm goosebumps. I can't believe it. It's like one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. The voice of children out, singing is so like, beautiful. So so you know so I stay. I take pictures. I take videos. Other things happen during that that are just amazing. The parents are bored. They're like, when's rehearsal? And I'm just like hanging on every note. It's so beautiful. I shoot all these videos of like the entire ceiling of the place coming to rest on some little girl who's singing her solo. It's just so amazing. Wow. I send this, I text it to Tavia, who's six hours earlier in New York City at work. And, you know, a minute later, she texts me back like I'm crying at my desk. You know, it's that beautiful, right? Wow. So, it, so it ends. And 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 the rehearsal ends, and I go walking out in this rainy night. It's like, what a great experience I just had. And I go and I get a dinner at this place, just like this little the basic dinner. And then I take the walk 40 minutes back to my hotel room. And I open up the computer and I have the two guys about to fight. And then they hear something. <laughs> they go inside the cathedral. And it's the first re first rehearsal of the choir being newly formed right. by this bombed out cathedral and it's 12 kids singing. And it and felt so, like, and it felt real to you. You didn't feel like you, like you didn't, you didn't, it felt like it just had to happen. Absolutely. That was, that was what's going to happen. That's, That's why they were not going to fight. And the, and what happens, they listen to the, the choir, the kids for five minutes. And then the guy who's being all belligerent says, I got to get back to work and leaves right. and they don't fight. And it, it wasn't a concoction. It, the world gave me what That's I needed. That's great. You know? That's so, great, man. So you say like, we don't know and we can be woo-woo, but I can tell you like, God bless Tavia because I still have that video. Yeah, but you know what? You didn't have to go for the walk. You, what I always think is you listen to, you can call it what you want, but it's guidance. In other words, look, I don't know how to write your book. Only you know how to write your book. Like you're the only one who can do it. And so you got to listen to something. You got to listen to something that says, not that word, this word, stop writing, start. I mean, there's a certain thing we're following. And I and for me, when I follow the guidance, it feels good. When I resist it, it feels bad. It just it's yes. it's how I know. And you listened. You did your part. Well, right? Yes. I think what also happens anytime that you push and the book pushes back, yeah. And what it means, and you just it's you know, take some humility. It's just like, oh, I want this to be this kind of book, but it's not. I no. was wrong. It's something yeah. else. And um, you know, it's amazing how often. Uh, what Carl Jung said something to the effect of um, don't worry about the um, rabbit being in the hat your subconscious put it there a long time ago <laughs> and I really feel that and often when I'm in a predicament where I've written myself into a corner in some kind of dilemma I go back and I go hey that character who walked out he needs to walk back in now right. or something is there right. the rabbit is in the hat and if you just can have faith in that then it's okay to just say well I was wrong at this scene they're not going to fight yeah. instead they're going to hear children sing it's so funny because I coach writers and I teach writers, and but I don't do craft stuff for the most part. Mostly what I'm teaching or trying to is just what we're talking about, learning how to trust what you 
what your subconscious knows, what your muse knows, whatever language you're comfortable with, and how challenging that is for so many adults who are used to being in charge or thinking they're in charge of something. And I think they're probably not, but they think they are. And with writing, you really have to give it up. You have to follow a sort of pleasure. You have to have fun. It's an unusual description of the word, but I think that that's ultimately, I think, I don't know, my definition of fun is effortless engagement with life. You don't have to be playing basketball. You don't have to be, you know, playing jacks, but effortless engagement with life and writing at its best should be effortless. I think in the, in the purest sense, does that make sense? Yeah, I think it, um, I have to think about the effortless part of it. Because I don't want to I push. Think- I never want to push. I never want to push. It doesn't mean I'm not concentrating. It doesn't mean I'm not waiting. It doesn't mean everything's coming immediately, but I'm not pushing anything. Yeah. You know, Bill, it's a, it's actually a matter of personality because I come from a background and family and disposition that strives. Oh, oh. And strive oh, is yeah. like the yeah, wrong I, thing. It you is. You cannot strive a poem nope. into being interesting. You nope. cannot strive a character into being sympathetic. You cannot strive a scene into working. In fact, you have to just sort of allow the art form to, to decide and, yeah. and your openness. And the more open you are, the more there will be a children's choir there. And, you know, I could have just seen those choir, seen that choir and come back and written a, did a different scene or left that scene for another yep. day or taken the whole scene out or any number of things. And instead, it's actually a really important little parable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, oh, good stuff, Stephen. I want to go back to something you said earlier, which I find interesting, which is that you said your favorite part of the creative process probably aside from what we're talking about now, but your favorite part is when you've got that first draft down and now you can kind of go in and you say, okay, ah, I see what I've got here. You love that moment of when you can get in and begin to mold the clay a little bit. Yeah. Is that a fair description? So that's interesting because a lot of, I I coach so many students who are like, oh, the rewriting, it's so painful, it's so hard, it's so better when it's going to be right. That they can't stand it. And I think there's a lot of psychological reasons for that, but you love that. That's your favorite. So describe to me what's so pleasurable about that moment. Well, there, there are a couple of things. One is that I have a, um, a sense of purpose because I now know the story that I'm telling. The basic and story or like a lot of like how much how much of the story do you know at that point, would you say, after your average first draft? After my average first draft, I think I know what the book is about and I know what the arc of the characters is about. Oh, OK. So you got to break you get a pretty good sense. All right. But it, but it, but it doesn't necessarily exist in that draft. Right. I just know. Yeah. So so for example, um in the Glass Chateau when I wrote the first draft, the guy's life is okay at the beginning and then he works his his mess out and and I went back and was like, "No, no, 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 no. His life is awesome. Is I mean, it's awful. It's terrible. Right. He's right. starving." His home is gone. His work is gone. His family is gone. His friends are gone. He's literally starving, and he's and and he's on his way to commit suicide by throwing himself into the sea. And the one thing he's good at, he doesn't want to do again. The one thing exactly. he's he doesn't want to do ever again. Right. So yes. just yes. So so what's he going to do? And we're and you know it's going to take decades in his view, uh, maybe a century to rebuild because the destruction is so complete, and um, and yet. Uh, and and yet he doesn't commit suicide and and, um, and but he, I had him start way lower, right. so that sort of thing. So so the beginning was a very different beginning, and um, 
you know, it was more like, and for each character in their arc, starting them in a different place where they end, knowing that they had these kinds of arcs. Many of these characters and all of the men at the Chateau are making, you know, stained glass windows for the bombed out cathedrals. That's what they're doing together. But everyone there is damaged goods, 100%, every single yeah. person. And one guy never speaks. One guy never tells his name. Well, it wasn't until I got to the end of the first draft that I knew why. Right. You just knew, that, oh, you know? that's interesting. So they just weren't doing it, but you didn't know why. You just, your impulse said they don't, right. I discovered as I wrote them. Right, right. I discovered as I wrote God, them. So the guy doesn't say his name because his name has become synonymous with a great act of cowardice that he committed that people know about. So he doesn't right. want to tell his name because he's ashamed. The other guy has things that he's hiding by not speaking. I don't want to give anything away here. Right, right, but, right. right. Um, you know, but I still wanted him to be a likable character, even though he doesn't speak. It's, it's easier to do in film than it is in a book. Yeah, you know, oh, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of that. That's yeah, of course. Of course. So so um, uh, the other thing is. I don't know how to describe it except proportion. How big should something be? How big should right. an event be right. and or a build up to something? How important is a love relationship in this guy's? history after the war right. and how many pages do i want to spend on that and how do i want to say that this woman is beautiful without just saying hey reader in case you didn't get it this is the beautiful woman <laughs> right. don't miss it right right and um and so uh you know so i tried a little trick with that i could tell you about it if you want but anyway there's a um there's a uh like then i know that this character's name isn't donahue it's dixon right a little x in there yeah, which is yeah. what i did in the curiosity that 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 um that uh emma's lover is not going to come back to her right during you know during the baker secret um because it's the war and, right right um and uh that's 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 its own kind of discovery and then it is an act of craft but it's also when i feel truly omniscient because now i know the story and i can come to a paragraph of dialogue where someone carries on about something at great length and I can literally make it four words. Yep. And, yeah. and I will dance around this. <laughs> yeah, that feel good? And make it four words. Yes. It's so, it feels so satisfying to get rid of something you don't need. Almost better than putting in something beautiful. It almost is better just getting rid of something sometimes. Oh, it's so weird. All right. Well, uh, yes. So what it sounds like is, you, so you get that draft and there's a sense of like, now let me be true to this thing. Now every decision is be true to what I think, what I've come to discover that it is. And now I honor that through it. Now I'm honor. Maybe that's the right word, but you're now making choices within what you understand. It, it's told you that it is. Yeah. And you like working with that. Oh, that is so cool. That's cool. All right. So give me your secret. Give me, because I, I always think that beauty is like a fish story. You know, you can hear about it, but it, you, someone could look at the beauty and say, I don't think that's beautiful at all. In the eye of the beholder. So, how do you say beautiful without saying beautiful? Okay. Well, I mean, the first thing, of course, is you can show how men respond to her. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And that's kind of the easy one. Yeah. Um, but um, Galway Cannell once said, the poet Galway Cannell once said that this is half of the transaction. Oh, yeah. The other half is what happened in, in the reader's mind. Yep. For sure. And I love it when somebody says, just says, oh, I'm reading this great book. And you say, well, what's the title? And they say, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, something about something about a bird, right. uh, a bird. Okay, um, uh, you know, is, is it the goldfinch? No, no, no. Um, uh, well, who's the author? <laughs> oh God, it's a southern kind of name. Um, oh well, well, what's it about? Well, well, 
uh, this black man is accused of rape and and he didn't do it. He obviously didn't do it because he doesn't have one the arm that he supposedly did the hitting with and and um and he's sent to jail and there he gets shot a whole bunch of times and it's told by a little girl's perspective. Oh, to kill a mockingbird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the one. Right. And what's happened is not only did they forget the title and the author, they forgot they were reading a book. The dream that they were creating. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Information is so vivid that yeah. they just see that little girl and that injustice. They don't see anything else. They don't even see this black marks on white paper. And right. I think like, so, so, so one of the tricks with making a woman beautiful is to have the reader make her beautiful. Not me. I don't oh, yeah. describe her. I don't say she looks like this or like that or like anything else. And I just, you know, I, but yet I try to convey this. And then the reader, like, I would love to sit down with 10 people who've read the glass chateau and say, Marie is beautiful, right? What does she look like? And have them write it down and compare their versions. Um, and what I did in this book, that's a little bit cheating, not cheating. It's a trick I tried just between us and your audience. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. right? Let's, yeah. um, is, is this, um, I don't really describe the appearance of the other people very much yeah. unless it reflects character. And every time that she enters a scene, I describe what she's wearing in the color. Yeah. She's always wearing. So no one else has colors and she walks into the room and it's a sky blue dress. That's right. That was so clever. That was so clever. Yeah, that was. That was favorite dress that she wears is the one that's coffee with cream in it. Right. That's I just have I have fun with these colors, very specific colors. And I think that that makes your in the readers like however the mapping of the brain works. There's one little part that just gets a little bit brighter for her. Yeah. A little more vivid for her. Because if you find someone beautiful, attractive, they do pop. They pop in a crowd. They, everybody else kind of goes black and white, and they go color. You know, yeah, that's exactly. just oh, that was that was clever. That was well, clever. I don't know if it worked or not? But well, but you know, know, it's so true. Like, it, it, like well, sometimes when I'll read books and they start describing what the woman looks like, and I'm like, I can't even see what the hell you're talking. I don't want need to know about their. Like, it doesn't mean anything. It almost never means anything to me. Like, I can't really picture what people look like. In you, you describe one character. I remember is very thin. One is very big, and his bigness mattered. You know, and so that was. To his personality, so I that, but most of the time I can't. I personally can't picture what they're even saying. You know, there's one other character that I describe, and while I was writing the description of him, I was looking at a photograph of a gargoyle. <laughs> you know, yeah, so I'm, trying, I'm not saying he's a gargoyle, yeah, right? Almost, right, but generally, I certainly wasn't describing people's clothes. One guy who's just always in black, but yeah. that's it. Otherwise, I don't describe their clothes. Um, and. Uh, and a woman whose top is always open, but other, but otherwise, I really kind of leave it. Well, I just wanted her. I wanted Marie to stand out and yeah, it's give her that colors. Yeah. So, have you had? Uh, so, this has been out since uh, early June and or mid June, yeah. and uh, uh, you know, you're talking to me, but how's it going in terms of the conversation you're having with the world, such as it is? Have you been enjoying it? Has it been fun? You know, uh, a heavy book in a way, been... but it's a good book. No, I mean, let me, let me, let me. Uh, it's it's a lot. Let me let me say this. Um, first of all, I wrote a novel that came out during COVID and during the first wave of it. So it got rescheduled. Yeah. I had a 28 event tour that got canceled wow. and then um, and then it got rescheduled. And, you know, and I wasn't able to see readers. And as you can tell, I'm not an introvert. So <laughs> I need I need the balance with the solitary hours. I do. Yeah. And it was hard for me. And I got a lot of writing done, but it was hard. And so um 
So this book comes along, The Glass Chateau, and it was uh, June 19th, that Monday is when I did the launch, kind of here in my town. And I did it at a place where I had learned about how to make glass, and I'd even mm. made a little glass there. Yeah. And um, and we set it up thinking at, at the most, and our most ambitious, that there would be 60 people. We had seating for 60 people there. Yeah. And we had well over 200. Oh, oh. And the next really? day I was in New York. Yeah. And the next day I was in New York City and it was set up for 60 people and we had well over 100. You know, and I, I'm really happy. Let me just say, I'm really happy for you, but I'm also happy for books. I'm happy that people are coming out and that they want to hear and they want to gather together and talk about stories. That's so great. So the thing that's that's um, that's a lot feels a, big to me. And then I'm just um, getting my hands around it and my heart around it <clears throat> and my words around it is, um, you know, last night, five weeks after the book came out, I was in a little library up in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, which is up in the corner near yeah. New Hampshire and Canada. And there were no empty chairs. And so I've had this experience of people showing up for this book like all my other book tours put together. That's and amazing. I think it's not about me. I think people, first of all, are eager to get together. And secondly, I think that they're really hungry for a healing story. Yeah. And they really yeah. are resonating with this healing story, even though not ever it's, it's not a happy ever after ending. It's a ride off into the sunset ending. Right. But they are that but they have recovered somewhat. That's great. So, excuse me. So, so I'm working on the words for it because it has been so generous. It's yeah, it's beautiful. You know what though? I realized when I was a kid, I thought artists were the most. I, in my, I realize now that we're the most generous people in the world. I thought, even though they're known to be narcissists sometimes, but to me, they gave so much. You know that I needed. Yeah, but that's not it. It's that's how it felt to me as a kid. Like, I got so much from that. That was my experience. And partly why I wanted to be one, I think. Uh -huh. What do you think now? I think it's a two-way street, baby. I think we get we get a tremendous amount. We give and we get and we give and we get. I think it's actually like raising children. I learned more from my kids than they did from me, right. for sure. You know, so I think it's kind of like that. Yeah, I think it's been um, this one. It hasn't been a two-way street nearly so much. I've, I've received. It's been it's been really amazing, and I still have events going on, you know, and and um, not quite done with with proselytizing about it. But I'll tell you, <laughs> it changes it changes what you do in in an event. If you have um, if you are overwhelmed by the crowd, you know, you don't. At least for me, I, I didn't have any interest in being a book salesman. At oh, that good. point, you yeah. know, I really just wanted to be like, I wanted to give them gratitude and tell them about this healing story and how these damaged men somehow by making stained glass begin to mend and how they're mending maybe like the children's choir is maybe a way we Americans could think about putting our dukes down for a minute yeah. and having a little common purpose. Yeah. And, you know, that's like a different, that's a very different kind of conversation than yeah. this book has sex in it. You'll like, and it has <laughs> violence. it's very yeah. engaging. You know, like I'm not doing any of that. No, good. Know? Good for you. Oh, Stephen, I'm so happy to hear that. I'm happy. Like I said, on, on a lot of different levels and it's a beautiful book. I, you gotta Thank be you. proud of it. I'm sure you are. Thank yeah. you.
well, you should be. But I'm not quite done with you, my friend. What do you uh, got? I know you got to get back and write another book. But before I let you go, uh, I want you to finish this sentence. Think about all the writing you've done all the way back to your journalism up to today. And if it's taught you anything, it's taught you what? Oh, it's taught me so much. How about if I start with this? Um, it's going to sound abstract. But look, so many things. Okay, language. Language is our fundamental tool, like, like paint and brush are for a painter. Right. But almost unlike any other art form, our language is also a contract between the person who uses the word and the person who encounters the word that we mean that word and we mean exactly that word. Right. right and, and right. that, and that we can be relied upon, even if the narrator is unreliable, even if it's a satirical joke, whatever, that, that this word means what it means. And that that is an understanding that we both bring to the book. And I think that sounds like like sort of self-evident, but not lately. <laughs> so, yeah. so I feel like, like, you know, my stock and trade is words. I've had about 5 million words in print. Yeah. I really believe in what language is and how it is a gateway to so many things. And for writers, you know, we don't want to be propagandists. We don't want to be selling anything. We're just like, here's what the word is and what it means and how we use it. And likewise, that we accept a word in the way that it is meant and not 90 nuances that we put on it with right. our bias, but right. actually what this concrete thing is. And um, and the, the other lesson from these years of work is uh, never to stop. You know, I started writing fiction in high school. And I published my first novel when I was 53. <laughs> Got four books that didn't get print, printed by anybody. Yeah. And I look at them now and I think, thank God, because yeah. they're awful. But uh, but it turned out that I wasn't doing it because I wanted to have any kind of notoriety or renown or be recognized as an artist or any of that. It was because it's how I am. Yeah. Telling stories is how I am. And so uh, the thing that I've learned is that you, you just got to keep at it and that the work itself is its own reward. And then we'll see what comes beyond that. How'd I do? You did good. You those I agree with both of those. Those are good right. lessons. Those are good lessons. Stephen, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. A real pleasure for me. Love all the energy. Really appreciate it. Yeah, see, wasn't that a good one? Of course it was. Wouldn't steer you wrong. I wouldn't steer you wrong, people. Hey, remember to check out Fearless Writing with Bill Knauer, my other podcast. Still doing it, still loving it. And in the meantime, I want to thank my producer, RJ Jeffries. Thank you, Mr. Jeffries. And to all of you out there, to all of you, go find something you love to do. Anything at all. Go find it and then do it. Do it.